Welcome to Archiving AK, a podcast of the Archives and Special Collections at the UAA APU Consortium Library in Anchorage, Alaska. We're here to talk about what we do, what our researchers are up to, and to give you a closer look at the world of archives. This is Arlene. For our April 2019 podcast, since April is National Poetry Month, we decided to feature some of the poetry to be found in archives in Alaska. We sent out a call and received poetry from archives in Alaska and offers to record it from archivists, librarians, and community members. The following is a gathering of the responses we received. Our first poem today comes from Margaret Milkey, Alaska's first poet laureate. Her papers are here at the Consortium Library. This poem is entitled Two Days in April, and it's read by Corey Whitmore, a faculty member in the University of Alaska Anchorage's College of Health. Two Days in April. April 1761. No place under sun is better than here. Climactic spring one in upswinging cheer. This is April day. The sun courting loud sends a singeing ray straight through a cloud. There's triumphant mirth pitched high in delight as the top of our world turns green under white. I laugh till I cry, my pen overflows as winter months die, gorbillied from snows. April 1861 Ho, ho! What's this I see? The pussy willows climb the tree with snow loads on their back. Thick sky around the rim. Trees catch snowballs on the limb. The road has lost its track. And all the air is specks of white and moving flecks. The ground is no dimension white. What has April done? Sacrificed its springtime sun and lost its season overnight? Next up is a poem entitled A Day of Wind. It was written by Louise Gallup, and it comes from a collection at the Anchorage Museum at Rasmussen Center. It's read by Lorelei Sterling, a librarian here at the Consortium Library. A Day of Wind. Three trees bow to their images in Nugget Pond. They dance to rhythms of a wind that alters angularities, that rattles against ripened cones, unites them with the clouds and grass. And when their world turns dark, they fade to whispers, shadows, fragrances. Next, Veronica is going to read a poem by Anne Chandonet from her papers here at the Consortium Library. The title is McKinley Quilt. Mount McKinley Quilt. The snow has taken over the chain link fence, stitching a gray and white quilt, the pattern tumbling blocks, baby blocks, the Irish chain. It's white magic. Thousands of triangles of spotless percale perch in the lower triangles of each diamond, while the upper triangles are open to gray sky and stark woods. The white peak of McKinley points down in this design, like its reflection in Wonder Lake 200 miles north. And above it is the great one itself, but gray, like Wonder Lake, now under ice. Mount McKinley Fence Company, King Kong of the fencing world, has laid on this running fence, two white miles, facing the bike path, where I take my constitutional, a barrier keeping moose out and airplanes in. 
It's all one long coverlet hung to air, eight feet tall, generous enough to keep my toes warm as I walk in October's falling flakes, drifter of loose goose down. The Alaska and Polar Regions Collections and Archives at the University of Alaska Fairbanks was kind enough to share a recording of John Haynes, another Alaska Poet Laureate, reading from his own work. Uh, this is John Haynes reading from Winter News. If the owl calls again at dusk from the island in the river, and it's not too cold, I'll wait for the moon to rise, then take wing and glide to meet him. We will not speak, but hooded against the frost, soar above the alder flats, searching with tawny eyes. And then we'll sit in the shadowy spruce and pick the bones of careless mice while the long moon drifts toward Asia and the river mutters in its icy bed. And when morning climbs, the limbs will part without a sound, fulfilled, floating homeward as the cold awakens. They say the wells at Northway where the cold begins. Oil tins bang as evening comes on, and cloud death drift in the street. Men go out to feed the stiffening dogs, the voice of the snowman, the white-haired children home. Came to this a young man, green and lonely. Well quit of the world, I framed a house of moss and timber, called it a home, and sat in the warm evenings singing to myself as a man sings when he knows there is no one to hear. I made my bed under the shadow of leaves, and awoke in the first filled with silence. We're returning now to Margaret Milkey. This is a poem she wrote about the 1964 earthquake. It's entitled Good Friday Miracle, and it's read by Matthew Meyer, one of our consortium library employees and a University of Alaska Anchorage student. Somewhere in the ocean, unseen in the silt, a cosmic shaft turned clockwise with straining twist a mere degree upon its axe. The line spoked out in ragged spurs and tangents, wrenched the very skin of earth, shearing roots of wood and mortar, unbonding cracks. Humans felt the lifting, lowering, sag and rise of infinite trampoline, with loosening jelly grip ground, sneezed split, agape. Fracturing, splintering, sundering, ripping, teetering, clowning for balance as the quickening substructure spilled, rubbling shape. Women and men forgot their shock in reaching a hand to the need of another, sending their spiral of love for safety's care, that any not near be safely protected. Called to the neighbor, are you all right? The invisible circuit began in hope's own prayer. Neighbor to neighbor, and friend to friend, everyone thought of the other, remembering her, and him, and them, this one and that, 
The hope wish prayer grew wider and stronger still, including and ever including till the miracle moved, left life intact. Somewhere in the inlet, unseen in the silt, the cosmic force went quivering, incredulous its work of half an hour. But in the depths of mankind's grimmest learning, was felt life's sweetest kinship, and in the aftermath was found man's miracle power. Faith Revel of Valdez was kind enough to volunteer to read a poem for us. This poem came from Esther Winnicke's papers here at the Consortium Library. Esther Winnicke wasn't a poet like John Heans or Margaret Milkey, but her papers include a few poems that she wrote. If you want to clear out hatred, poverty and disease, if you want to set the world to rights, to heal the wounds and bridge the gaps of righteous us and terrible them, it's a bit like washing an old blood stain so dark and seemingly set. It won't come out with ignorance nor hiding it away. Cutting it out only ruins the cloth and makes it unfit for use. Dying to match would be tricky. The coloring fades, the lie is given, and eventually it shows. It cannot be cleaned by the cold water of war, whatever old wives' tales may say. It can only be cleaned in warm waters, those of kindness and compassion, and the gentle, persistent caressing known quite simply as love, introducing, reminding the cloth of its nature, releasing old patterns, and pain. A poem by Esther Wenneke. Next up is Corey Whitmore again, reading a poem from Richard Downhauer. The Consortium Library has a small collection of his poetry work. This one is called As If All Sitka Were In Flames. As if all Sitka were in flames, the white blinding glare of sunlight after rain on black shingle roofs steaming in the sun complete with raven winking, iridescent phoenix hopping on the roof. I'll be reading the next poem. This one is by Joanne Townsend. It's from the Joanne Townsend Papers here at the Consortium Library. Outrageous, independent, Alaskan woman attends the 40th reunion of her nursing school class by Joanne Townsend. Yes, the weather is long. Yes, I've been up there 24 years. After the coffee hour and neonatal unit tour, everyone, faces I can't remember, passes photos of their grandchildren. I don't have any grandchildren, so I show photos of Donna's cabin, interior with generator, kerosene heater, wood stove, and outdoors are jumping dogs. The spruce forest, the sweeping views of the glacier, Donna, Dan, and me smiling. My old roommate says, why would anyone want to live that way? I show the snowed-in yard in February, the bull moose, cow, and two calves crunching the birch boughs. They exclaim, you mean you have live animals walking up and down your streets? After the luncheon and afternoon program on sexuality and aging, I accept a ride to my hotel from Lois. She's 59 to my 60, and we've 40 years of catching up to do. 
In downtown Boston, her car suddenly needs gas, and the one open station has only self-serve pumps. She's panicking, says she's never pumped her own gas. I'll do it, I say, and show her how. Yes, I've been up there 24 years. Yes, the weather is long. John Berg, another Consortium Library employee, is now going to read for you a poem by Anne Chandonet entitled Ptarmigan. Ptarmigan Up among the emblems of the wind, into its heart of power the huntsman climbs, and all his living stars are bright, and all are mine. Aldous Huxley in fall, I throw off my coat, vein by vein, and sprout a white one, lustrous as moonlight. I become one with snow. Early winter evenings, I drill into drifts, eiderdowns. Dim days, I walk drifts, little feathered snowshoe feet, and reach up, up to rose hips and dry currents. Here is my emblem of perseverance. Here, under this drift, two thin blades of grass piercing the center of a bracket fungus. The sun hoisting herself with corded, spasming biceps over the last white boulder at January's end. Now the black flows jostle in kinnick arm, elbowing toward heat, dissolving. I dissolve into another bird, become one with shadows, and my pale winter self I bury beneath the bronze and black monuments of alder leaves each a perfect rotting heart. Anne Chandonnet, 1982. A lot of you might recognize the author of this next piece. He was known as an occasional poet, but probably better known for another statewide position he held, Governor of Alaska. Here's a recording of Jay Hammond reading one of his own poems entitled The Shaky Seventies. This recording came from Alaska's Moving Image Preservation Association. Insofar as the whole decade itself is concerned, uh, I was asked here a while back to do a summation in a in rather semi-facetious terms, did so in the form of a poem, if you'd like to hear that, that is entitled The Shaky Seventies. It says, the gay nineties had their ups and downs, the roaring twenties did so too, but no other decade can compare with the one we've just lived through. When mankind moved, moved about, roamed about the moon and women marched for equal rights and Nixon drowned in Watergate and our knowledge reached new heights. As we learned to freeze dry even people and tried to alter facts of life by making babies in a test tube. But who wants a test tube for a wife? We scoffed at OPEC nations as a camel jockey bunch until they sunk their spurs in our backside and with a one-two punch made us turn down our thermostats and drive at 55 and cut down on gas consumption by cutting out the Sunday drive. But up here in Alaska, some folks really had to strive to keep their winter's household heat at the mandated 65. But I'll do my part, I told the president, though I may come to rue it, for to meet his goal I had to first install a second furnace just to do it. But then came summer and I thought at last I can hardly wait to turn both my heaters off and save. But then came Jimmy's new mandate. Keep your house at 78, even if you wilt. So I still have to run both heaters to avoid a sense of guilt. And then, of course, there was D2, which prompted some to urge secession, while some felt instant wilderness for Anchorage, an appropriate concession. Yet though we argue and we bicker, all agree, alternatives considered, we're blessed as through this past decade, we've all just been delivered. 
So for the moment, let's stop griping, fretting, cussing, and that jive. Take time to thank the good Lord twice. You're in Alaska and alive. Gwen is now going to read for you a poem which she'll introduce for herself. Hi, this is Gwen. And if there's one thing that most people know about me, it's that I like food. A lot. So I'm going to read you a poem that is also a recipe. It appears in a cookbook put out by the Anchorage Women's Club in 1965. The poem is called Dilled and Filled, and it's by Margaret Milkey. If I could ask from earthly state between the laws of God and mammon, one flavor I would plead from fate, a dilled, filled bake of fresh king salmon. For caught into that coral flesh are siren juices for the gullet that sing to satisfaction's dish and strum the song chords of the palate. Soak two cups of crummy bread into one pint dill pickle juice. Slice one great big onion finely. Salt and pepper stir like the deuce. Take the tail end salmon half. Fillet and remove middle bone. Fill with dilly dressing. Frost with mustard. Bake alone. For four pounds, bake it 40 minutes. For six pounds, bake an hour. 400 temp, then soar in culinary clouds of tasty morsels, timeless power. Here's Corey Whitmore reading a poem by Anne Chandonnet entitled The Chase. The Chase. I'm Wilhelmina the Woolly Mammoth. I was caught one day in the vast wilds behind the dining room table. They had to chase me for miles of verdant flowered linoleum round and round the table before they caught me. They dragged me to the archaeological couch with promises of food, that is, wool stuffing, and shelter, a nice cozy little display case, and loving care, a careful dusting by monthly. They brushed my long hair over my eyes and tickled me, a great indignity for one of my rare species. Oh, woolly mammoths are lots of fun, lots of fun, lots of fun. They live in the north where there's not much sun, not much sun, not much sun. They have long hair and hate to run, hate to run, hate to run. You'll surely know it if you see one. Hip, hip, and aurora borealis. April 10, 1961. And now for something a little different. The next one is from a collection here at the Consortium Library. Back in the 1950s, 60s, and 1970s, a local Anchorage radio broadcaster named Reuben Gaines had a regular radio show called Conversations Unlimited. He's probably best known for the fictional character he created, whose name graces one of our local drinking establishments, Chilkoot Charlie. Reuben Gaines wrote and recorded quite a few poems about the life and times of Chilkoot Charlie. This one is entitled Chilkoot Charlie and the Salmon. You've heard of Chilkoot Charlie, the behemoth prehistoric. His very mention hits one like a shot of paragoric. The following is true, though offered with apology. How Chilkoot wrecked the northern hemisphere's ecology by trying to alleviate a local liquor famine, and thereby changed the habits of the Yukon River salmon. But fish aside, the people's thirst is what this is about. Nowhere you looked was there a tongue that wasn't hanging out. 
Well, students of the North are well acquainted with the Yukon. Its bed is wide enough to lay the late ex-king Farouk on. According to the findings of a special research panel, a billion liquid gallons wander daily through its channel. And if this mighty waterway were dammed at either end, a lake would be created past imagination. Friend, envision, if you will, what happens then if one should stash its bottom full of hops and rice and barley. What a mash! The waters rising to the top of such a reservoir should shortly be two hundred proof or so, which then was par. Thus Chilkoot Charlie thought. Back then the soil was rich and lush, where now one finds no more than polecat weed and alderbrush. The hops and barley growing wild and native would bedapple the hillsides springing high as, say, a tall man's Adam's apple. The people dug the thought, tore up the barley and the hops, and threw them in the Yukon, dammed it up, and dreamed of schnapps, and waited for the first gassed fish, and suffered agonizing thirst before it came about. And then from out the water burst a school of coho, in a state of obvious hysterics, and singing audible to all suggestive barroom lyrics. No further evidence was needed. People filled their crocks and drank. The lake contained a kick that would have felled an ox. The bender that ensued does not concern us, simply say that what went on would turn the Prohibition faction gray. We must pursue those drunken fish. Entirely innocent of spirit liquor heretofore, they scrambled ocean-bent, and flopping and hallooing in a way to turn your liver, they broke the dike that dammed the lake that dammed the Yukon River, which, when it folded, let the potent waters billow forth, resulting in a deluge that engulfed the cringing north. Whatever stood within its course, beast, greenery, and human, was withered. What a batch! Enough of all. Let's thence illumine the further progress of the fish. Encountering the ocean, they straightway sobered. Yet their feeble minds sustained the notion that something strange had happened on the hazy day before. When brains were handed out, the fish were hid behind the door. From thence, there filtered down to each succeeding generation the same exhilarating and mysterious sensation that somewhere in the inland streams lay heavenly well-being. And clearly that's why they return. The fish are bent on seeing what prompts this recollection of a former paradise. They make the trip each year as soon as spring removes the ice. The fish and game authorities and other types will state they go for lesser purposes, to put it bluntly, mate. So went the catastrophic day that saw the foliage die there, around old Chilkoot and his drunken friends. Yuck, let them lie there. Veronica is now going to read another poem from the Louise Gallup Collection at the Anchorage Museum. This one is called Footprints in Brown Mud. Any photograph of footprints in brown mud. Some bear has left his presence here in sharp-edged prints, deep-toe marks, wicked bite of claws, thick pads that hold the grain of skin, and narrow heels that barely dent the ground, impressions in dried earth to come, tomorrow's fossils set and hard who, finding them some future fall with bear extinct as dodo birds, will know the thousand things that are along with bear. A river eats away a grass bank, gulls shrill and pluck decaying scales, clover calls bees, the fireweed burns purple, salmon thrash upstream, to loose new life and lose their life, and over all, ring smell of bear downwind, wary photograph assembles gadgets to record the trail. These signs are cleansed now, winds fragment them, weather them. Through years, sunburn, snow melts, rain washes dust away. In old brown shale, footprints remain of toes and claws in aimless wandering. 
Becky Butler, one of the archivists at the Alaska and Polar Regions Collections and Archives at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, shared a poem from their holdings. She's going to introduce it for you. This is Becky Butler with the Alaska and Polar Regions Archives up at UAF, and I'm reading a poem called The Last Wolf by Mary Tall Mountain. Mary Tall Mountain was born in New Lotto and is an Alaskan poet. The Last Wolf. The last wolf hurried toward me through the ruined city, and I heard his baying echoes down the steep smashed warrens of Montgomery Street and past the few ruby-crowned high-rises left standing, their lighted elevators useless. Passing the flicking red and green of traffic signals, baying his way eastward in the mystery of his wild loping gait, closer the sounds in the deadly night through clutter and rubble of quiet blocks. I heard his voice ascending the hill, and at last his low whine as he came, floor by empty floor to the room where I sat, in my narrow bed, looking west, waiting. I heard him snuffle at the door, and I watched. He trotted across the floor. He laid his long gray muzzle on the spare white spread, and his eyes burned yellow. His small, dotted eyebrows quivered. Yes, I said, I know what they have done. Tall Mountain added a note to the bottom of this poem uh, in our collection, and she says, I would like to think this wolf is with me all the time. I know some of the times when he is. I speak to him often. I think he is my spirit helper or guide. And we're going to go back to Margaret Milkey again, since it turned out that a lot of the people who volunteered for read, to read for us really enjoyed her poems. This one, called Not Easy to Come By, is read by Jennifer McKay, a librarian here at the Consortium Library. Not Easy to Come By by Margaret Milkey. Love of Alaska is not easy to come by. It is hard wrought, hard got and earned. It is a growing, a knowing, a long time feeling, a longer time showing, and not to be lightly philandered. It encircles the wheel of the diligent to arrive at the faith of point hope, requiring the strictest of manhood and an unerring truth in its women, all schooled together by snow, sun, and weather, by the natural college of unassumed knowledge, to give the old balance a new self-control, as steady and sure as our own North Pole, and we halfway achieve what is yet to come, a great wide open of snow-tinted copen, portrays of our worship to what we will need, be it wisdom or sporting, work or cavorting, or concern for our next-door neighbor. It all must happen inside and out, and we seldom know the order of coming about. But it comes, and once one has felt it, so needless the words that have been written about it, the heart frost forever is melted. Next up, Corey Whitmore is going to read a series of short pieces entitled Raven, written by Richard Dauenhauer. One. Winter storm with every step, raven shoulder deep in snow. Two. A black leaf skitters on snow crust, but raven caves it in. Three. Raven trying to pivot on a fulcrum of collapse. Four, 
raven up to his ass in snow. The next item was shared with us by the University of Alaska Fairbanks Oral History Program. It comes from one of their oral history interviews. It's William Wood reading his own work called Unknown First Family, about a sculpture of the same name. Unknown First Family. Who are these that seem to see beyond the winds? What brought them here? Weary, alert, unafraid, to choose this spot beside the frozen river, saying, our place is here. Unknown family, family unknown. Yonder, back there somewhere, hidden in the mists of time, the lands and ways they now forget. From there, beyond the distant sea to here, alone, they broke the trail where none had been before, the Great North Trail. First family, unknown family. There's the spirit to be first, first to settle here. No trail ahead, only the endless taiga, the tundra, the muskeg, wilderness. Awesome beauty filled with promise unexplored, unpeopled, alien. The long, long trek is done. They have found the place where they will stay, rugged, stalwart, loyal lookouts posted. They stand as one together, unknown, first family. Did some great spirit lead them here? Our merely need for food and shelter. Our chance, perhaps. Ordinary folk from nowhere to nowhere. Commonplace their rootstock implanted here, or so some say. Yet sinew and stamina superb, and that rare spirit to be first lest we forget. Out of the seedbed of the common, the uncommon. Other than the hand of God, what source to shape and fire the common clay? Other than the hand of God, what source to shape and fire the common clay? Our last poem for today is read by Veronica. It's entitled Ridge, and it was written by Joanne Townsend. Ridge, for Karen. Like a whisper barely understood, I wonder sometimes if they're still there, the bronze goddesses I came upon in the summer of 2004, languishing in fields of blue poppies on a ridge above Palmer, Alaska. The day turned hot, yet the iridescence calmed, and their bodies spilled coolness to my touch as I moved among them with my long lens minolta, its viewfinder caressing heads, hips, limbs, and each camera click, a moment no longer casual. Six nights before Christmas, from a life less clear, I dream those women, as through glass, their faces scoured gold by wind and weather, sculpted bodies still beautiful, fully draped in December's white kimonos. Since our last poem was written by Joanne Townsend, I thought that would be a good segue into the item I'd like to close this podcast with. 
This is an address Joanne Townsend authored. We think to an audience of aspiring writers and poets. In it, she talks a lot about being a poet in Alaska and what that can mean. But I'll let her words speak for themselves. My friends have made the story of my life. The title above is a quote from Emily Dickinson. I never found out which of her many poems and letters the words came from. It arrived in a greeting card with sketches of four expressive female faces above the text. I placed it in a forest screen frame and we have traveled to many years together. What does it signify? I think most of all connection, not just bonds I share with those close to me, but with all those far away with whom there has been caring and trust, with whom when I do communicate, it's as if we are suddenly in the same room and no time has passed. I think this is also true of language for those of us who write. We have to love it, work with all its possibilities, sometimes stand away from it in order to reconnect and return. Sandra asked me to write as sort of a status account, my life, my writing, and what I could say that would help younger writers. However, I do not use Facebook nor keep journals, though I have at times. I did live in Alaska for 35 years, 1970 to 2005, and it was my honor to serve four official years as Alaska's eighth poet laureate, and about two years unofficially at the Arts Council's request until a new laureate was appointed. Sense of place was so strong that we were living in New Mexico for three years before I could write a poem that did not have tinges of Alaska in it. My plunge into life as a poet began in Anchorage in 1975. I had spent weeks penciling a poem about my Polish grandfather and then read it, had read in the newspaper that there was going to be a poet's luncheon as part of Fur Rendezvous. It was going to be then or never. Thus I shyly entered the Captain Cook Hotel, clutching my penciled paper, found the room, took a seat, knew no one. After lunch, all of these people took out their books, typed sheets, and whatever. Some read poems from memory. I was last and nervously read what would become grandfather poem number one in a series. Folks applauded, and then Margaret Milkey came over and asked if I would take part in a reading she was organizing at the Pioneer Schoolhouse in a few weeks. I didn't know Mrs. Milkey had served as Alaska's first poet laureate. I didn't tell her this was the first poem I had written since 1964 when I had been ill in the hospital and given my mother the key to my New York apartment, only to find out later she had cleaned. A novella, short stories, poems, journals, notes I had jotted from writing workshops had been carried out as trash. What could she have been thinking as they slid down the building's incinerator? However, I just smiled at Mrs. Milky and said yes, went home to my small house in Nunaka Valley, turned part of our dining room table into a desk, and wrote like mad. All these years later, I am still writing. Three California poets came to that reading, Marlene Favre, Charles Mickey Mitchell, and Jim Gove, and it was exciting to meet them and talk. Marlene would commit suicide, Mickey would leave, but Jim stayed three years. He published a small journal, Minotaur, was a mentor to many local poets, and organized poetry readings in a restaurant in Northern Lights Boulevard. The building was a Quonset hut, a long, narrow, noisy space in which we shouted our poems to crowds while pots banged and dishes clattered. When his employer called him back to the States, Jim asked Steve Levi and me to take over the readings. Later, the place changed hands and the readings were no longer welcome, but Steve had the idea of starting a poetry magazine. We would work together, co-publish, and in spring 1978, Harpoon was born. During this time, I was taking university classes, teaching writing to gifted children at an elementary school, teaching poetry in the men's prison, an old concrete building on 3rd Avenue, juggling housekeeping and raising a young son. My husband worked long hours, usually missing dinner and our son's bedtime. Feminism, women's rights were in the news, 
discussed in group meetings in the press. Sometimes I felt that Alaska, with its wide spaces and history of exploration, was one mythic place for men with their boots and packs, yet another place for women with their responsibilities and assigned roles. I felt that our writing was less valued and tried really hard to even this out. Steve and I gave up Harpoon in the summer of 1982. He went on with the books he was destined to write, and I left my husband and son to spend four graduate semesters at the University of Arkansas Fayetteville, where I had a teaching assistantship. If Arkansas taught me anything, it was not all the American and English literature that my mind was stuffed with. Yes, that was important, but mainly I learned I could survive anywhere. Miller Williams refused to let me into his writing classes because I'd never taken his elementary course in the form and theory of poetry. My advisor and professor spoke to him, but he was unbending. During my last semester, I submitted three poems for an award that usually went to Miller students. I won one of the three Felix McQueen awards given that year. Dr. Margaret Molsterly, one of my professors, canceled our class on Southern women writers so all could attend the ceremony. That was survival, and so were all the lonely nights when I had fallen asleep in my big bed, exhausted, my books and papers all around me, dreaming of home and snow and moose chomping on birch limbs. What I would say to younger writers is believe in yourselves. Whether you write on scrap paper in snatched moments, sit at a computer, or have a writing room, whether you discipline yourself to write so many hours a day or write only when the words run in your head till they push you, it is never the same for any two people. When you read other poets, look at beginnings and endings, all the way individual writers get in and out of their material. And don't ever let anyone tell you what you have written is not a story, an essay, or a poem. A leaf has veins, a rose opens, light sweeps the sky. When I moved to New Mexico in 2005, I expected to be able to return to Alaska for the summers. Dan and I had done that for five years, living part of the winter in south-central Florida on a barrier island, the rest of the year in Anchorage. Health issues changed our plans. It's called having too many birthdays. And so we released Painted Ladies, shipped from Florida's butterfly farms, into New Mexico skies, and sometimes hear the shaman's calls, trying to bring back the ones who have lost their way. At 81, on an afternoon, with a gunmetal sky and threatening clouds, I write to an old friend how I am grayer, slower, more arthritic, though I come from an ancestry of strong women. Time's wrinkles, yes, but I move on. Insensible shoes, repeating, repeating, my lifelong walk, taking on the thunder. Thank you for joining us for Archiving AK for April 2019. We're going to have an, a bonus episode in May with Veronica interviewing one of our recent researchers. We hope you'll join us for that too. <laughs>